Uh, I was thinking uh, back this week of uh, a scene with, I think it was my second son, I think it was Jed, uh, when he was a little boy. And it was interesting because I was remembering this scene in the swimming pool with my son, and it was almost the exact same, I could remember almost the exact same thing with my dad and my brother. And, And maybe you've experienced this. But I think Jed was about three years old, and I remember being in the pool and telling him to jump to me. Right, Like he's just learning to swim. He loved to get in the water and whatever, but you're in the deep end and you're going, jump to me. Come on, jump. And, you know, little boy, three-year-old, he's going, no, 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 I don't do that. No, I can't do that. And he's, he's standing on the side and, no, I can't do that. And you're going, no, just jump to me. It's okay. I'll catch you. And I remember looking at him in the face and going, do you trust me? Do you trust me that I'll catch you? And he'd go, well, yeah, yeah, that, you know. And I'd say, well, then jump to me. And he'd kind of, no, no. And then I'd say, well, do you think I'm going to let anything happen to you? Do you think I love you? And he'd go, yes. And no, you're not going to let any. And then I'd go, well, then jump in. And he'd go, no, no. You know, and so this happened probably a half a dozen times before he actually jumped in. But several of those times he wouldn't do it. Just like I remember my brother not doing that uh, with my dad many years ago. Same thing. Yes, I love you. Yes, I trust you. Yes, I know you're going to take care of me. But no, I'm not going to do it. And so I was thinking about that in that moment in a three-year-old's mind. He knows that I love him. He knows I'm there for him. I know I'm going to take care of him. But there's a disconnect, a disconnect from what he's professing to believe true and what he would actually do. And he wouldn't jump in in that moment because uh, the fear of the unknown was greater than the faith that he had. The faith that he had in me. Yes, I know you'll catch me. Yes, but this is really scary and I don't want to do this. And so I go, okay, I'm not going to make you jump. And he wouldn't. And eventually he did and he got over it and it was had a blast and all that goes with that. But the truth is we do that often as well in our walk and our faith. Uh, There's things that we profess to believe and we say are true and we hold to the confession and we we profess it and we say it. But then when it comes time to kind of jump in. It, 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 our fear holds us back. Um, sometimes it's the circumstances. Sometimes it's the things that are going on around us. Uh, I'll give you an example. One of the things I've heard people say a lot recently, and not just this year, but in past years, as, as long as I can remember as a Christian, we say God is sovereign. And we, what we mean when we say God is sovereign is God is sovereignly control over all things. There is nothing that happens that unfolds in human history that God's sitting in heaven wringing his hands going, oh, I didn't see that coming. He's sovereignly in control of all of it. But what happens is the circumstances of life kind of press in. And I've seen this uh, a lot, uh, things that happen and then suddenly we start to doubt that that's true. But the Bible tells us that's true. It tells us over and over. For example, in Isaiah chapter 41 And the context there is nations rising and falling and all kinds of big global shifts are going on. And God speaks through the prophet Isaiah. And he says, who summons each new generation from the beginning of time? It is I, the Lord, the first and last. I am he. He says, there's nothing that's happening that I'm not aware of. I summon each generation since the beginning of time. That's a pretty cool thing to think about. But what happens, and I've seen this happen in my lifetime, we go through an election, and if our guy wins, the guy we were voting for, we go, well, God is sovereign. And no ruler comes to power that God did not ordain. And we walk around and we say that. And then maybe four years later, our guy doesn't win. And then suddenly we go, oh, no, the world's ending. What's happening? 
And suddenly the, the things that are in front of us press in and they feel more dire. And suddenly we struggle with really resting in that God's sovereign. And I've seen that happen over and over. Uh, lots of elections in my life and lots of people and different things. And I've heard people just very boldly say that. And then I've also heard the same people four years later be like, oh, no, it's all falling apart. And it's the circumstances that are pressing in and we feel it in those moments. Which, by the way, let's just be clear. God is sovereign. He's sovereign over the 45th president. He's sovereign over the 46th president. He will be sovereign over who is the 47th president. And he's in control of all of it. And we can trust him in that. Now, that doesn't mean there's not real uh, choices with real consequences. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be involved or, or working towards things that God has called us to. But God is sovereignly in control of all things. But we can disconnect from those things that we say we believe. And so I start there today. I mentioned that because what we're going to talk about as we continue in our series for January, which we've been calling Covenant Renewal, we've been looking at our church covenant, the things that we promise to one another. And we get to our topic today, and it's one of those ones where we see a big disconnect in what we say and what we actually do. And part of that's our culture, part of that's where we've grown up, part of it is a whole lot of things that come into play about it. But today we're talking about giving. And when I say giving, giving of our money, giving of our time, giving of our talents that God has blessed us with, and in all those ways, giving generously to those around us, giving generously to one another as the church. And the disconnect comes a lot of times between what we say we believe and what we actually do because of our culture and so much of what is around us. We struggle with this idea of what is ours and we disconnect from some great big truths that Scripture tells us. And for example, I, I mentioned the last couple of weeks, uh, I've kind of been reinvigorated with the New City Catechism with my kids. If you've never heard of this or never used it, something we use here at the church, New City Catechism is a question and answer, uh, one for each week that goes through big ideas of Scripture. And it's just a way to teach. It's a teaching tool. Uh, it's great for adults and kids alike. It gives you a great big truth of the Bible. It gives you verses that go with it. It gives you some, some uh, kind of background just uh, that, to help you understand it more fully. It's a free resource. You can go to newcitycatechism.com. You can get it on an app. There's a book. All these different ways you can use it. And so I've been using it with the boys. We've done this for years, but I was kind of reinvigorated this year, and we've really been staying on it. And so the first two, the first two questions in the New City Catechism, the first one is what is our only hope in life and death? We're not our own. We belong to God. Right? And so what is our only hope in life and death? We're not our own. We belong to God. That's the first one. The second one that we were doing two weeks ago was uh, what is God? He is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. And those have just been dwelling in. The, I put it up in the kitchen. And so every time I walk in, I'm asking the boys. And so uh, if you see my littlest Quinn around here, ask him, what is our only hope in life and death? He'll, he'll see how fast he can answer it. We're not our only ball of God. Got it. Like he's, he's got him now and he's into it. But it, think about what we're saying. Our only hope in life and death is that we're not our own and we belong to God who is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. And if we truly believe that, think about the far-reaching implications on the way we see our stuff. My things. If my only hope is that I'm recognizing that I'm not my own, that I'm God's, and that he is the sustainer and creator of everyone and everything, that radically changes the way I look at my stuff. 
what's mine and what's got none of it's mine. It's all his. And so I want us to think about that a little bit this morning because of what we say in our church covenant. What we're promising to one another as being members of one another is a part of this local body. And so in our church covenant, you can find it on the welcome desk on your way out. There's a bunch printed. You can pull it up on our website. It's all there. We've been going through it each week. But one of the very last statements, I think it's the eighth one in the list, says this. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. And so simply what we're saying is that we're going to give generously of not just money, but our time and our talents. We're going to continue to sustain these worship and ordinances, and we're going to do this together, and we're going to give generously for that to happen. And so I want us just to think about that idea together this morning. And the way I want us to think about it is first, before we even look at Malachi 3, what I read to you just a second ago, I want us just to think foundationally who we are as people. Because we can, have a, we can open up Malachi 3 and read what God clearly says there and the charge that he's giving his people and what he's calling us to and be like, whoa, because of our culture, because of what we're inundated with all the time, because of this idea that it's my stuff and mine and I've got this. And it, but if we look at what God calls us or what he says about who we are in light of him, it radically changes the way we read Malachi 3. So I want us to start with who we are. Then we're going to look at what God is challenging or calling us to in Malachi 3. And then lastly, why is this so important and how we grow in it? And so let's just start with who we are. Big idea, big picture. And the first thing I want to say to you as we think about who we are is the idea of the Imago Dei, if you've ever heard that before. The image of God. That we as people are created in God's image. We talked about this a few weeks ago as it pertains to community. But it also pertains uh, very importantly to what we're talking about today that we are made in god's image and so when we say well who is god right so god is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything actually the third question this new city catechism that i've been doing this week with the boys is how many persons are there in god there are three persons in god the father and the son and the holy spirit and they are of the same substance equal in power and glory the trinitarian view that we hold to as christians that god is the father and the son and the holy spirit all fully God, all one but separate distinct persons. And so when we talk about the Trinity, it becomes very important for a whole host of reasons. But one that I want us to think about this morning is this. And I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. But that God in and of himself is the perfect loving community before he creates anything. That God didn't create out of a need in and of himself he didn't need us to be able to experience love. He already had it perfectly in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That it existed eternally. And when God chooses to create people in his image to be able to experience this relationship with him and with one another, he does to share with us the fullness of joy that he already has in and of himself. And so God creates to share with us, but not out of any lack in himself. And so God is giving to us fundamentally giving to us but we're not completing him or doing something that he was lacking and so god creates us to be part of this community this perfect love that exists in the father and he invites us into that as his creations capable of understanding being conscious being able to 
receive and give love and to understand what that's like. And God makes us in his image in that way to share in that. And so as he makes us in this image, he makes us to love God and to love people. It's fundamentally who we are as created in God's image. So that's a very, very important point, biblically speaking, theologically speaking, uh, very foundational, that God creates and allows us to be part of that. And so when we think about like what the New City Catechism says, uh, we're not our own, we belong to God. What is our only hope in life and death? That we're recognizing that it's not ultimately about us, that it's about God, our creator and sustainer, who creates and sustains everyone and everything. And so when we say that, we mean that in the most literal sense. You're not your own, you belong to God. You exist because God says so. Right? We just sang the song. The breath in our lungs that pours out praise. Right? The only way that we can do that is because God has animated us by speaking, breathing life into us. He keeps us in existence. And so very literally, in the most literal, physical way, we are not our own, we belong to God. We exist because he says so. But then secondly, out of that, just even thinking about that idea of not our own and we belong to God, is that God has made us to love him and to love others. See, in and of himself, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is perfect love outwardly focused on the other members of the triune Godhead, right? The Father loves the Son and he loves the Spirit and he's perfectly loving towards them. Excuse me. He's perfectly loving towards them in every way. The same with the Son towards the Father and the Spirit towards the Son and the Father. All three of them outwardly focused, loving. That's who God is, and he makes us in his image. We are made to love others. We are made to love God. We are not made to be all about ourselves. That's what our sinful nature, that's what sin is. Ignoring God and the world he created and deciding we can make it all about me and what I do. But that's not how we were created. And so when we say we're not our own, we belong to God. Yes, in the most literal sense, but also in the sense of we were created to love others. We weren't created to be all about ourselves. And so fundamentally, these are so important when we say we're made in God's image, the imago Dei, the image of God. But then the second thing I want us to think about is not just only in the way we were created, but our gospel identity, how we're redeemed. The gospel is the good news of how God has saved us. Each one of us has sinned. Each one of us has turned our backs on God. Each one of us has believed the lie that I'm the center of the world. I can do what I want. Yes, God, you made everything, but I've got this. I can do it on my own. We've all done that. It's what sin is. And in our sinfulness, we've separate ourselves from God. But the way in which God brings us back is he comes in Jesus to do for us what we can never, ever do for ourselves. And so not only are we made in God's image to be outwardly focused, to love God and to love people, but in our sinfulness, as we've rebelled against God, he saves us by coming to us to do for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. And so we're welcomed back in, we're reunited with God, we're brought back into his family by the greatest cost to himself for us. We're saved by him giving generously to us. Right? Second uh, Corinthians chapter 8. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth and he's encouraging them to give and to give generously to another church in need and he's telling them this. 
And he says part of his reasoning that he tells them is he, he roots it in their gospel identity. Second Corinthians eight, verse nine, he says, for, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. He says, this is who you are in Jesus. You have been brought back in because Jesus, who had everything, willingly laid down his life for you that you could be brought back in. You are saved, or as it says in Ephesians 2, you're saved by grace through faith, and it's not your own doing. Jesus does for you by giving generously of himself to save you. We look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's a different context, but the same idea. Paul's talking about sexual immorality. And he says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Again, he's rooting it in your gospel identity of what Jesus did for you. You're not your own. Not only did God create you and sustain you, not only is he your only hope in life and death, he saves you and redeems you by great cost to himself by giving to you. And so not only is it the image of God, but it's our gospel identity in the way that we're redeemed. And so if you think about the practical outworking of those two, right, when you start to put them together, that all that we have and all that we are given and all that we are and any future uh, that we have, any hope that we have is all rooted and grounded in what God has done for us. We are not our own. We belong to God in every way. And so I want you to think very practically about that in your day to day life. You know, maybe you're really great uh, being an entrepreneur. Maybe God has gifted you and you're great at starting new businesses. You're great at uh, reading trends of what's happening. You're great at making lots of money. You've done lots of things in your life and you've accomplished a whole life, whole lot. And so when you're thinking on all those things and the question comes, well, how did you do that? Why did that happen? And what we can do is we can kind of run through and go, well, this is why. You know, I, I went to school for this, and I studied really hard, and my parents raised me to value money and hard work. And, I, and uh, as I got older, I, I read all these books, and, and my personality is such that I'm, I'm not really that averse to risk, and so I'm willing to step out and do... Right, and so the question still is, why? Why are you all those things? Why are you hardworking? Why were you born to a family with parents that, that instilled in you a great work ethic? What part did you play in doing that? And the answer is God blessed you to put you into that place. Or, or, or why were you born into a country where these, this skill set that you have actually results in making a lot of money? What part did you play in how you were born into this country or into this? God blessed you with it. Now, that doesn't mean there's not uh, responsibility. It doesn't mean that we don't make real choices with real consequences. But it's like what James says in James chapter 1. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The simple truth is we are not our own. We belong to God every way and in all things. 
He's the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. And so that's very different than what our culture says. That's very different with what we're inundated with day in and day out. But that's the biblical truth of what God tells us. And so with that foundation, I want you to look at what God says in Malachi chapter 3. Now, if we go to Malachi, just to set the scene, we jump into an Old Testament minor prophet that maybe is not the most familiar book. But Malachi is writing about 430, 440 years before Jesus will come. He's the last uh, of the prophets in the Old Testament. And God is speaking to Malachi. And if you know Israel's history, uh, 586, they're destroyed. They're taken out. The Babylonians come in, lay waste to everything, take them out. The temple's destroyed. Everything's fallen apart. Uh, Over the next hundred years, they end up coming back and rebuilding the temple, reestablishing their worship and their ordinances and the things that are there, and the people come back. But as they come back and they kind of get resettled in the land and they've got their land back after all the stuff that has happened. And by the way, what the Bible tells us is God allows that to happen to them because of their rebellion, their repeated rebellion that he allows other nations to come in. But when we get to Malachi, they're still struggling, even though they've come back into the land with the very same sins. Uh, If you look in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 17, it says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? And then listen to the answer. It sounds a lot like today. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. He says, by saying that all the evil is done, it's fine and God's good with that. He says, that's how you've turned your back on the Lord. And it says this kind of relativism that they've, they've just laid everything down that God has called them to and everything's okay. And they're back to right where they started. And so they're struggling with the same, very same things. And so God speaks to them in chapter 3 and verse 6. And he says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your father, you have turned aside from me and my statutes, and you've not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you. But you say, how shall we return? And he says, will man rob God, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. And then he tells them, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And so the problem is they've rebuilt the temple, they've reestablished these things, and everybody's kind of not really into it. And he's calling them to faithfulness. And he tells them, bring the full tithe into the storehouse and I will bless you. So what is he talking about? In the Old Testament, we read about the tithe that God establishes as his temple and his worship are there. And as he begins to call Israel to be a people and he calls them to tithe. Now, tithe is a word we use today, but we often mix up what it actually means. Tithe means one tenth. Right? So if somebody says, I tithe four percent, that makes no sense. You just said, I ten percent, four percent. A tithe is ten percent. That's what it means. One tenth. And so you are supposed to bring one tenth of your first fruits to God and present it to him. And I want you to think about why God told them to do this. Now, when I want to say first fruits in agrarian society, a farming society, 
you would go and you would harvest your stuff and you'd set aside the first tenth of everything you made and you'd present it to God. And it was a way to sustain uh, the temple and its worship and its ordinances and the things that were going on there. But much more importantly than all of that is it was to recognize that everything I have and everything I am is the Lord's. I'm going to start with bringing everything back before him and going, it's all yours. That's why God calls us to bring the, the first fruits, the first part of it. That you're saying, you're starting, your starting point is this is all yours. And laying it before him. And so what had happened in Israel is they're no longer doing this. And I want you to think about what God says here. He says, you are robbing me. By not doing these things I've told you and not coming and laying down before me and saying it's all yours, you're robbing me. Now that's a really offensive thing to say in our society. But if you hold to that God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything and he is our only hope in life and death because we are not our own, we belong to God, it makes perfect sense what he says. And so he tells them, bring the full tithe and come in and bring these things. Now, one of the questions comes, well, is the Old Testament idea of tithing for us today in the New Testament? What do we do with this? There's no more temple in the way there was in the Old Testament. And so how do we answer that question? Is the tithe for today? And my answer usually is, well, yes and no. Hey, I like that for a nice, clear, <laughs> maybe, no. Yes and no, and I want you to think about why yes and no when we look. We don't ever see a clear like this is now an ordinance for the New Testament in the same way. They ask Jesus about, uh, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he does say you tithe and you well should. And so there's some debate on does that mean for the New Testament community or what does that look like? But I say yes and no in this way. What do we see in the New Testament? Well, we see Jesus fulfilling all the Old Testament law, right? The whole book of Hebrews lays that out for us. He is the perfect priest. He is the temple. He's done all of it. He's the perfect sacrifice. He's put an end to the temple functioning in that way. But now we are a new people that is called into the church. And we've been talking about that, of who we are. And we now gather together as his people. And so we go, well, does that now continue? And, and what does that look like? And how should we see that? And you go, well, what happens in the New Testament? Think of it this way. When we think of the New Testament, the new, uh, the new covenant that we now live under and in, do we have more or less of God's revelation to us than they had in the Old Testament? It's not a trick question. We have more. Jesus has come who is the exact representation of who God is, and he's shown us exactly what God is like. And now we see the fullness of it. And you go, well, what happens in the New Testament and their understanding is the disciples go out and they make disciples and the church starts to form. Are they more or less generous than they were in the Old Testament? Way more. <laughs> in fact, this idea of a tithe of a tenth, if you look closely in the New Testament, they blow way past that a lot. It's a good idea. It's a good starting point. It's a good thing to, to look to and try to uh, say I'm presenting to God my first fruits and starting there but they are radically generous. And if we think about it and we root ourselves and ground ourselves in our gospel identity, it makes perfect sense that Jesus came and laid down his life for us. And so what does that mean and, and, and how do we start to look at that and how should we take these? And I think the answer is this, 
that we should start in the same way. The, the principle of tithing is we're starting by saying, it's all God's. It's all yours, Lord. I'm going to start with giving generously. And then I'm going to build out from there. But that's going to be my starting point because I want to be always recognizing that all that I have is yours. Every bit of it. And so we start to go, well, what principles are in place? And I think a tenth is a good place. It's a good place to start. But God calls us to be cheerful givers. And he also calls us to, to give sacrificially. And so we start there and we start to build out from there. Or we start to, to try to seek to be there. But here's the thing I really want you to see in Malachi chapter 3 as we talk about it. Look at what God says in verses 10 through 12. He says, you're, you're robbing me by not doing this. But then listen to what he says. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the window of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer from you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. And then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. It's a really incredible thing that God says here. He says, test me on this. You start there and you give generously and watch what happens. He says, I will bless you beyond anything you can imagine. This will be way better. Now, we mess this up really quick. Today... Throughout the world, there is an evil lie that is from the pit of hell that is called the prosperity gospel. And what it says is if you give to God and you give generously and if you give enough, then God's going to increase your earning potential and you'll make more than you can ever imagine. And you can buy all your stuff and you can have nice cars and a big house and then you'll be really happy. They say that in the middle of Africa. They have people come in, walk in on dirt roads with no shoes and go, if you'll just give money to us, you'll be rich. And they profane the name of the Lord in doing so. And do you know why? When we take that posture of I'm going to give to God so he'll give me some stuff and that stuff will make me happy, I'm using God for a means to an end to do something that it can never do. That's why the prosperity gospel is a lie. God's not saying you give generously to me and then you'll be really rich and you'll be happy because you have a bunch of stuff. If you read your Bible closely, what God says is I will bless you and some of it may be financial. And I will take care of your needs and I will meet you in that and I will bless you so that you can be a greater blessing, that you can bring glory to my name and you can say, I am the only thing that satisfies. Not your stuff. That's a very different thing. One is using God as a means to an end. The other is saying God is worth it and we want everyone to see it and to know it. And that's what God is saying here. Test me on this. You live generously. You give quickly to those that ask and need you give. That's what Jesus says. You give generously and he says, and I will take care of you. 
I am the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. And I have got you in this, if you will trust me. And in fact, I'm so overwhelmed when I think about what Jesus says here. Test me on this. Try it. I mean, that's really what God's saying. Try to outgive me. This is a pretty incredible thing that he calls us to that. Test me on this. And I want you to think about just why he would say that. It's like I said at the be- my little boy standing on the side of the pool and going, jump to me. He's going, ah, I don't know. Right? And you're going, no, just trust me. Go. Jump. That's what God's saying. Trust me on this. It's all mine. You can't outgive me. And we're like, yeah, but I got some bills and I, I want to buy this new TV. And, I, and he's going, trust me, it'll be way better. And we so struggle with that. We have real things in front of us, real hardships and real bills and real. But God is saying, when you put me first and you see it that way, I will take care of you. I've seen this happen over and over again. I've seen it happen in our church where somebody comes and they're struggling with finances. Which, by the way, if you're struggling with finances, we are a family. You come and say, I need help. But it's for everybody. Wherever you are and whatever's going on, that's, we're a family. We're promising that we are members of one another. And so sometimes people will come and they'll, they'll say, I'm struggling. And one of the questions we will ask, and please hear me out on this, why we say this, how is your giving? We are not saying, are you giving because if you're giving, then we'll help you. That's not what we're saying. We'll ask that question because God says, test me on this. We're trying to get to the heart of what's... Are we trusting God with everything? It's an opportunity. Now, people, when you say that, they're like, I have, I, I'm really struggling. I, I, I'm having problems making end meet. And you go, well, how's your giving? And they look at you like, what? I can't pay my bills. What do you mean, how's my giving? Doesn't compute, right? But the idea of the first fruits of where we start is we start with God and then we work out from there. And we trust him in that. And that's what God is saying. You test me with this. And so we ask that question because that's what God says. You start here and you work out from there. And so God tells us that. Now, now hear this. There's another part we can miss this. That's not a test on God's part of saying, prove to me that you love me and then I'll bless you. God loves us and he knows what's best for us. And he's saying, this is how my creation works. It's all mine. I've got you in this. Trust me. It's not a test of now I'll I'll love you. I already love you completely and totally. That's why I'm telling you to trust me. Because that's where your greatest joy will be found. And so he's calling us in this and he meets us there. And there's this huge blessing. It aligns with, with who you are. I want you to think about why this is so important. Why giving of our time and our money and and the gifts that God's given us. And when I say gifts, I mean financially, but also in the things God has gifted you to do for the good of the body. Giving generously in all those ways. Why is that so important? Because when we start to do that, 
and we're growing as disciples and we're growing in obedience and we're seeing our identity in Jesus. It's who we are in him. It's how we were created and it's how we were redeemed and it's what we're made for. To love God and to love people to not be all about ourselves. And there's a great joy that's found in living that way. Why do you think God says a hundred times in the New Testament to one another? Right? To, to, to love one another and care for one another. It's, it's not a punishment. You were created to live that way. You were made for this. It's who you are. And so giving and serving and being generous with your time, it, it, it's now you're, you're walking in your identity of who you are in Jesus. Right? This all comes back together in the gospel. The God of the universe humbled himself to the point of laying down his life for us. To unite us back to him and now he comes and lives in and with us. And is calling us to walk fully in what it means to be in him. Well, of course that's going to be radically generous because that's who God is. And that's who we are in him. And there's a wonderful thing that happens when you begin to step in faith in that. And you trust him in that. God frees you from stuff. And I don't say that like we live in the most consumeristic society in the history of the world. We are piled on over and over. If you just have this, you'll be happy. No, you won't. It's not the way you're made. It's not the way God created you. It's not what God's telling you. But we get so bombarded with that. That's why we have this disconnect from what God says in the way we live. Yeah, but everybody else says it's this. And God says, test me on this. Jump in. I've got you. Let go and jump in and I'll take care of you in this. And so as we end here, I hope you see the importance just in who we are in Jesus and what it means for us. But I also just want to challenge you. We've been talking about discipleship being growing uh, in relationship, this invitation, but also being able to challenge one another by what God's word says. And so I want to challenge you wherever you are on this to test God on it. And the truth is, if, if you stand here today and you go, I'm not giving anything. Okay. In Jesus, God loves you perfectly and fully, completely and totally right now because of who he is. But he is calling you to obedience. He has something better for you. And so if you're not giving at all, maybe you sit down and you look at your stuff and you go, what? this year we want to give 2%. Okay, be faithful in what you have right where you are right now and make that set. Trust, jump in and trust them there. Maybe you sit here and you go, I tithe 10% and I have my whole life and my parents taught me, that's wonderful, great. Maybe next year you're supposed to tithe 15% or 11% or 12 I don't know. But that's where you go before the Lord and you ask him to show you. Ask God to give you a bigger vision of what he's doing. He says, test me on this. And you begin to seek to how am I going to honor you? How am I always going to do that? And so continue to trust that God is the one that is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. It's all his anyway. I said this a couple weeks ago and we'll end right here. But you have, your life is a breath. Right, James, the mist that vanishes before dawn. The resources God has given you, you get for this little set time. How are we going to glorify God with what he's given us? It's all his anyway. How are we going to do that in everything that he's given us? So pray with me. God, we thank you for the glorious truth 
that you love us, that you have shared with us your beautiful creation, that we are not our own. I so thank you that we are not our own, that we belong to you. I pray that you would continue to teach us and lead us and guide us, show us what that means to live into the fullness of who you've created us to be. Make us gloriously generous people to glorify your name and what you're like and who you are. I pray that when we think about giving, whether it's of our time, of our money, of the talents that you've blessed us with, it would always be uh, seeing that it's completely about you, that it's an opportunity to glorify you and to point others to your glorious nature. We thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.